0: On this episode of The James Quandall Show.
1: They need me to take a little bit of a personal risk to be uncomfortable and to say something that, gosh, I don't know if they're gonna like hearing this, but my goal is really to help them get the best results possible. I gotta tell them, hey, I need you to do this because I'm doing everything I can.
0: On today's episode, I had the pleasure of meeting with Lauren Reeling about coaching, personal goals, success, and the numerous distractions that hold us back. We discussed the importance of being able to set boundaries and say no, but also the reverse of that, not being afraid to get uncomfortable, reach out, and get a no back from a prospective client, friend, or opportunity. We also set some ambition goals for ourselves, including discussing the launch of a mentorship and coaching program for you, the listener of this podcast. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy our conversation. Before we started recording, we were briefly talking about your coaching program. And selfishly, I'm really curious to know when you're coaching a dozen or two people, if you've seen any themes that come up in the people's productivity habits or their lives or what type of things you see they have in common. Um, and it could be even be pitfalls that you notice. But let's just start with positive things first that you're noticing that these potentially high achievers have in common.
1: Oh, I love that question cuz one of my favorite things is to draw out themes, to say what what is happening in common among people and I love that my clients come from all different backgrounds, all different industries, all different business types, um different ages, etc. and yet there are common themes that you can draw out. So, starting with the positive, I would say that the people who have the most success just in general with whether they're just setting a goal and they want support around that goal or they're struggling in an area and they want to get better is that they really take ownership over their actions. Like they don't try to wave a magic wand. They're not looking for a silver bullet. They really reflect on what that action is that they need to take right now. Like what is that one or what are those one or two things This month, that I can do to move the needle forward.
0: That sounds like a pretty uncommon trait when looking at people as a whole. Because if you're looking on social media or what's trending, it seems like the stories we're most interested in are people that made it big overnight, not people that kind of like slugged away in private for months and months just working on that one thing and takes 10 years to get there. Does it seem, have you noticed any kind of thing with that, with people who are achieving versus unachieving?
1: Oh, for sure. I think that people who achieve less, it's interesting because they will make these like big moves. Like I'm going to pay off all of this debt all at once, or I'm going to go invest in this thing to grow my business. They'll do like something big, but they might not do the things that we talked about in our coaching session. (laughs) And, uh, that seem like smaller. And what that does is it actually sort of sabotages them because, because they're not doing things in a systematic way. They're not following a strategy. They're just like looking for that next thing where they're going to get that next big break. And I think you're totally right. Like we love the before and after pictures, Right. Like who doesn't love a good transformation story? But uh like I used to watch uh there's like the home makeover shows and the biggest loser shows and you know, all of those big transformation shows. And how many of us will even sit through an hour of that? Like my I couldn't get my husband to watch it with me. He's like, just show me the before and after. I don't even want to watch 45 minutes in between.
0: And that, yeah, that's that's interesting cuz like the I used to love watching HGTV and the um what was the name of the show? It wasn't how maybe it was House Hunters, whatever the ones they do the renovations. And I was always just so jazzed to see what the final product was. But you're right. It's like a 45-minute show. And it probably took months for them to actually do that. But if I had to watch months of it, I wouldn't even care.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't follow the journey. If they said, we're going to dedicate a whole season, we're going to update you in real time on the progress of this house. be like, no, that is so boring. I don't really care. <laughs> just show me yeah. what it looks like at the end. And I, I think that that's a big mistake that a lot of people make, whether it's in their personal finances. I mean, it applies to every area of life, personal finances, your business growth, uh, even relationships, spiritual growth. I really think it's sort of a universal principle that if you're going to be successful, if you have a goal that you're working toward, that you have to be okay with taking these incremental steps and know that it is going to be a process and being really committed to the process rather than trying to find shortcuts or a silver bullet to get there faster.
0: So is the the tactical way it works is you set a goal, is it a 1-year goal at first or a 2-year goal and then you break it down into smaller chunks or like what's the actual how do you break free from this jumping around and actually stay focused on the small steps? That that's the that's what I want to know because these folks you're coaching are working on these small steps to achieve the bigger goals but How do they not get distracted with those wrong moves, I guess?
1: Well, I think that the timeline that you're looking at depends on the goal itself. Like I always look at a goal as a tool that you're using. Not The goal isn't the goal. The goal is a tool to get to where you want to be. It's a way to measure your progress on something. So if you want to pay off a certain amount of debt, maybe you want to pay off $50,000 in one year. Okay, great. Well, if that's a 1-year goal, then you work backwards from there to say, well, what will that require of me to do that in 1 year? Or okay, that might be a little too fast.
0: Yeah, it's $4,000 a month.
1: Yeah, or maybe you're like, wait a second, I can do that faster. Like I had one couple who paid off $120,000 in 7 months because they were able to do that. That's probably, you know, more the exception, but but it's doable. So, So I think you have to sort of look at the timeline, depending on what it is that you are ultimately wanting to accomplish and break it down, break it down from there. And then once you say, all right, here's what I would love to have accomplished in one year or in six months, break it down from there and say, well, what could I do each month in order to get there? And then what does that mean for what I have to do each week? And then from there, what are those action steps I need to take on a daily basis if I want to be where I want to be six months from now or a year from now.
0: Okay. So that makes perfect sense. And I want to go deeper into that, but I am curious, what about goals you just can't achieve in a year? What if it's a goal that you just physically couldn't achieve in five years? How do you set that kind of course towards that five-year goal? And knowing that you may not even really know the waypoints along the way, but you have to keep working towards it and let that sort of unravel itself as you're getting closer.
1: So can you give me an example? Like, is there something in mind that-
0: Yeah, let's say you wanted to grow your, I don't know, let's not talk businesses, I guess. Is your coaching mostly personal habits or business habits or money? Like what is it mostly? Mostly
1: business finance. So I actually got started as a business owner myself, coaching people on their personal finances. And then after a couple of years, I realized that, business owners were coming to me for help with their personal finances. They didn't know how much they could even pay themselves next month. So they couldn't manage their personal finances because their business finances were so disorganized. So then I started getting into how can I help people with their business finances? And that's really the direction uh, that I concentrate on now is helping entrepreneurs organize their business finances and be more profitable so that they can pay themselves and reach their personal goals.
0: So let's say the goal was to have... A million in revenue and half a million in income. Let's say you were doing a fifth of that right now, and you wanted to work towards that, and you kn- just you know that's the lifestyle you wanted. That's how much money it's going to take, and you're willing to work hard to get there, even if it takes five years.
1: Okay, so in in the book Atomic Habits, James Clear, this is like probably the one thing that stands out to me the most. If I if I remember anything from that book, it's going to be this concentric circle that he has in the book. And it's, and, and he says that instead of starting with what you want to accomplish in the middle, you have to start with, who do I need to be? So who do you need to be in order to be a seven figure, you know, business owner, like what is going to be required of you? What kind of habits do you need to have? What does, what does someone who makes a million dollar million dollars in revenue? What do they do to make that happen? One of those things would be, well, I need to make sure that I am managing my cash flow. I need to make sure that I'm staying out of debt. I need to make sure that I'm consistently profitable. Um, I need to make sure that I'm always focused on serving my customers. And so you can develop a strategy around, all right, what is our growth plan? And you're going to have to break it down at least one year at a time because no one can make a plan that's going to be five years out because we just can't
0: have you ever have you ever watched on shark tank when they're in there and they don't have any revenue yet Uh they're like got this product and they've already spent a million getting to where they are and they're like, oh, how much revenue you have? Oh, we're pre revenue, but our projections are like, wait a second, you're projecting what your revenues are going to be before you even made one sale? Like, get out there on the street and go sell one of your products, like, and then make a projection.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's so true. Like, your projection doesn't really mean anything if you don't have data to back it up.
0: It's like, yeah, you have like you have to your projection could be maybe if you did the same work you did the year before, you could project you would probably do the same amount of revenue in the current year. If you want to grow, well, you're probably going to have to do some additional work of some kind. And like for my business, the one thing that moves the needle for getting new clients is me getting on the phone and making uncomfortable phone calls. It's not all this other noise that can distract me. It's literally just making a phone call to someone I've been nourishing a relationship with and just being like, hey, let's talk. And it's so hard to make that call. Like, I can think of a million things to do instead of that call, even though I know that's what actually gets me clients.
1: Oh, it's so true. And I don't know if you've read the book, The One Thing by Gary Keller, who founded Keller Mm -hmm. Williams, but he talks about identifying that one thing in your business and everything else is a distraction until you get that one thing done and so you have to be so hyper focused on doing that one thing that is going to move your business forward that's going to make that, that create that domino effect where everything else either becomes so much easier or even unnecessary because you're moving your business forward and not getting distracted by things that do not have a direct impact on your business growth
0: that makes me think about a long like if you have a long-term goal that we kind of outlined It's going to take a lot of personal fortitude to stick with it for that long and not quit because there's going to be ups and downs on that journey. When you're coaching people, do you spend time almost as a counselor about personal habits too to keep them strong?
1: Oh, you wouldn't believe the crossover. I mean, almost all the time, if someone is stuck in their business's growth, it could be growth or it could be another area of of how their business is running, but it's almost always directly tied to an area of personal growth. Okay. So I'll give you an example. Um, It could be, and we'll keep it hypothetical. We'll keep it hypothetical, but let's-
0: No, let's keep it specific. Just don't say a name. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. That's fair. That's fair. So I've, I've seen it many times where it was like that one thing that was required, just what you were talking about earlier about how it's so hard sometimes to just pick up that phone and make that uncomfortable phone call. They're just like, I'm not willing to do that. Like I I'm okay getting clients with inbound leads with word of mouth, whatever, but I don't want I'm not willing to put myself out there to go meet people, to pick up the phone because I cannot handle being told no. And mm. that's not a business problem. That's a personal issue that you have to overcome.
0: So do they need to overcome it or can they just bring someone on the team who can do it?
1: Well, if they have the money to be able to afford that and they have to realize, well, this is what it'll cost you to not overcome that. So if you have the money, if you if your sales are high enough and your revenue is high enough and your profits are high enough that you can afford without going into debt, of course, if you can afford it and you'd rather outsource that than, than to... Uh, do it yourself, then yeah, that's okay. But when you're just getting started, that's not a luxury. You don't have, you don't have that option unless you're like, well, I'm just going to go into a bunch of debt and I don't really care. And I think that that's one of the reasons that debt in a business is so insidious is because it, it masks a lot of problems and it really, it really steals opportunities for you to grow uh, as a, as an individual. And then also, It's going to steal your profits. And then profit is what really is is the driver of sustainable growth. So I think like once you get to the point in your business where you can outsource things you don't like, that's totally fine. Outsource those things, like focus on the things that you're great at and you love doing. But in the meantime, you're going to have to learn some stuff and you're going to have to be willing to grow in areas that are uncomfortable and you don't necessarily like doing those things so that you can create enough profit to outsource.
0: I worry about entrepreneurs who start a business and are afraid to sell or don't know how or never learn to sell because if you do hire someone, let's say you spend $75,000 a year and you hire a salesperson, who's gonna train them? Who's gonna teach them your way of closing sales with your values and your mission if you don't know how to do it? So you have to learn to sell your business. No one's gonna ever be able to sell your business better than you. You started it. It's remembering that, but then being afraid of no. Like how do you coach someone to get over being afraid of being told no?
1: That's a really good question because <laughs> it's hard. I mean, I I didn't wanna do sales at first. I was like, I just wanna be a coach. I don't wanna, I don't want, you know, I had all these all these fears about people feeling like they're going to be taken advantage of, and I shouldn't charge this much. And I made, I mean, I mean, I made every mistake in the book. I undercharged. I didn't sell my services well. I tried things that worked for other people, but just didn't work for me. And really the only way to overcome it was to be so motivated by your mission and your desire to help people that it's worth it. Like The right people are going to say, yes, I can remember one client that I'm still working with today that, uh, that I started working with, I think four years ago now. And I was still very uncomfortable with doing consultations. I hated doing consultations. Now I love them, but I hated doing consultations because I had the wrong mindset around sales. And I thought that it was icky to do sales. And
0: when you say consultation, you mean like, um, the first call you have with somebody. Yeah,
1: exactly. I always do a consultation with them. Like, let's see if this is a good fit. Let's figure out what the challenge is and like how we're going to solve it. So, so, but I, I was that, they just, I hated seeing them on my calendar, even though you have to in order to be a coach, right? And I remember I followed up with this person probably four or five times. And every time I would make the call, like my heart would race. And it was just like, it was physically, uncomfortable. I didn't want to do it, but I did. And eventually they picked up the phone. They said, thank you so much for following up with us. Life has just been so crazy and we really need your help. And so from that point on, that was a big turning point for me because I stopped looking at sales as something where I was imposing on somebody else. And instead I'm inviting them and I'm, I'm just inviting them to the conversation. And there's always going to be those people who say. Thank you so much for following up with me. It's just been crazy. So I see it as a way to serve them instead of a way to inconvenience them.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Because if you're selling a product you believe in and someone's buying it, knowing all that it encompasses, it's a fair trade. Like you're trading value for value. If you're stealing it from them, or you're misrepresenting, or you're hoodwinking them, that's different. But if you're being straightforward about what you can and can't do, you're being straightforward and honest with the pricing, and they say yes, then great. If they say no, it wasn't a good fit. And so I understand that logically, but I'm with you. It can be so intimidating to ask for the sale, or even to get a potential lead on the phone. And... That's where the magic happens. That's where everything actually clicks. And there's a book, I don't know if you've read it, by Steven Pressfield. And I think it's called Do the Work. He's got two books, War of Art and, yeah. Okay, so the other one's War of Art. And they both talk about the resistance. And basically, it's this force that's gonna stop you from hitting publish. It's gonna stop you from calling someone. It's gonna stop you from from taking that lead it's going to stop you from doing the thing that's actually going to move you forward and push you onto something that's just going to make you feel okay and when I was reading those books I was like he's like talking right to me because when I'm releasing a podcast or releasing a blog post or calling a client anything could get in the way and and, and intimidate me and it's so real of a presence and you don't feel it unless you're out there trying to do something new in the world
1: Oh it's so true and all of those little distractions that just make you feel better it's so easy to justify it's almost like oh well here's why I couldn't go work out today cuz my day was just so busy but we know that if something is important enough to us that's when it's going to get on our calendar so it has to be it has to be important enough and the way that I look at sales now is who am i to withhold my help from someone like why should my fear and my insecurity stop, you know, prevent someone from getting the help that they need.
0: That makes so much sense. And then so saying uh, there's someone that's, a I can't remember her name right now, but she says, go for no, basically like try to get the no, because then you're actually out there doing something. So that's one bottleneck that prevents people from achieving their goals. What other ones have you seen that on the personal side?
1: Yeah, I would say, oh, on the personal side, I would say a uh, lack of good boundaries and And I have to, and I'll, and I'll just share that all of these things I recognize in my clients, because I've, I also have to deal with this stuff. It's not like I, you know, I have it all figured out and then I can just help everybody else. No, I've had to struggle through this too. And I found that with, as, as you become more successful as a business owner, you have to have better boundaries around your practice. Cause if you have like three clients well, it doesn't really matter if they're rescheduling and canceling and stuff because your calendar is pretty open, right? But once you start getting full, well, now it's affecting you and your other clients and your ability to get more business. And so you can't af- really afford to have them cancel on you because either they're not gonna be able to find a, a, a coaching spot or you know, they're that's kind of like your your time and your money are really valuable, right? And so, and so is theirs. And so you have to start thinking about a cancellation policy. You know, am I actually going to have a policy where you do have to reschedule 48 hours in advance or, uh, you know, you're going to get charged with a fee if you don't show up or something like that. And I've talked to a lot of business owners who are really afraid to implement a policy like that because it just kind of feels Mean, like they want to be understanding, and they're kind of afraid to say, "Yeah, I'm charging you because you canceled an hour before your appointment." Um, my chiropractor is one of those people. Uh, he he and I were just chatting about business, and and a cancellation came in, and I asked him, like, "Do you know how much money how how expensive it is for you not to have a cancellation policy?" And he's like, "Well." you know, people reschedule. He's like, I know it's just, it's so hard to, to do that. And you know, they eventually reschedule and I'm like, yeah, but you're really busy and it can take a little while to get that initial appointment with you. And if people are, if people are going to cancel and then have to reschedule later, well, that's, a time slot, maybe that's only, it's probably like 15% of the time people canceled. So that's 15% of the time where you're paying your staff and you're operating, you have all of your overhead expenses, but you're not actually making any money.
0: I'm guilty. I cancel on my chiropractor all the time. And I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Dean. I usually text him too. I'm like, "I'm sorry, can't make it. And it's like, I'm not respecting his time. And If he charged me, I would maybe go. Oh, his time's more value than I realized. Like I didn't realize that he was holding that spot for me, and he couldn't say yes to someone else because I was on there. And then now he's just twiddling his thumbs in his office when he could have went home at four o'clock, but he was waiting for the five o'clock appointment with me. Like there's all these ramifications to the business owner when you don't have those boundaries, but the consumer doesn't really even understand that unless you make it clear.
1: Yeah, we don't. I mean, we don't even think about that. I mean, even me, like. I, I, I run a business, but hey, if someone has doesn't have a cancellation policy, if I know that I'm not going to get charged, like, yeah, it's probably, if, if I need to move something in my schedule, that's probably going to be the first thing to go. As terrible as that is, like, I I try not to, but if it's, if I'm like, well, something's got to go, so I'm going to cancel on the one that isn't going to charge me a fee, right?
0: Yeah, I get so, oh, when, when I have a meeting with someone, And it's been on my calendar for two weeks and five minutes before it starts. They're like, Oh, sorry. my previous meetings running long or I'm getting pulled into this other meeting. I'm like, I could have been at the beach right now. I've been waiting around all day for this call. Like I could have used this time for something else. Like I start, like at first it wasn't even a big deal. I didn't really care. But as my business grew, my time got more valuable and I needed to guard it so much more. If you don't put these practices in place when you're small, you're basically going to fold when you get bigger because you're going to have to do something like this.
1: Oh, for sure. Like the bigger, the, the more you grow, the more your systems and boundaries matter. And, and if you can recognize that you're feeling a little bit of resentment or frustration, something like cancellations. I mean, that's a great example, but it could be with anything. If you're feeling any resentment or frustration with how your clients are behaving, that's on you to change to change things. That's on you as the business owner to, um, to, to communicate your policies, to communicate how things work, um, and then to follow through on it. And that's the really hard part is the follow through because we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings or make them feel bad or anything like that. But, um, you've got to have, you've got to have the right boundaries in place. And usually that's through the, through policies and communication. And often when we can recognize a lack of boundary or like, this is really hard to, uh, to actually enforce that boundary in business, it usually is going to show up in our personal lives. And well, it's not like it's isolated to your business practices, right? It's something within us where, oh, I need to learn how to create better boundaries in my life so that when I go to create boundaries in my business, it's not so terrifying,
0: speaking of boundaries and specific to coaching and this even this even works with my business but what about the client sort of becoming a friend like how as you have these intimate conversations about their habits and their goals and their dreams and their personal habits how do you separate like friendship versus client like i would i would have a very difficult time doing that as a coach because i just love so deeply in relationships and if i get to know someone and they open up to me like I'm gonna open up back to them, and they're gonna be like a friend. Like, how would I prevent that in a coaching scenario?
1: I don't. It, the nice thing about coaching, it's not you're not a therapist, so that's the nice thing. You're it's not like this one way street where it, it's a it's a different relationship than someone being a therapist or a you know counselor. Um, but you want to serve your client, and so I love the way that uh, Rich Litvin frames this. He says, "I care so much that I don't care." Your friends are going to tell you what you, what you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. Like, I care so much that I I don't care if you don't like it basically, or that it doesn't make us friends. Like I want to serve you, not please you. Your friends can be the ones to tell you what you want to hear, but I'm going to, I'm going to serve you by telling you the truth. And that's why people hire coaches because they want that guidance. They want that honest feedback and they want that accountability. And so. If you're trying to if the goal is a friendship, then you're not going to like give them that sometimes brutal um honest feedback like the third time that you ever talk, right? Like that's not going to happen if you're just trying to be friends. Now, over time, I have become friends with some of my clients. You know, we've worked together for a year. They've experienced this amazing transformation. We've gotten to know each other like, yeah, I would consider some of those people my friends. But friendship is not the goal. So I can't let, you know, I, I really like all my clients. Like I don't offer a coaching spot if I'm like, yeah, I don't think we're going to get along here. Right. (laughs) Which doesn't happen often, but, uh, but that's one of the purposes of the consultations to see, is this a good fit? I can't let my, uh, like, if I'm like, wow, this person's really great. I would love to be friends with them. I I'm not going to use that coaching time to, Focus on friendship things I'm gonna serve them i'm I need to be their coach, and so over time, you know yeah, sometimes you can become friends with with clients um but it's it's not the purpose. the purpose is is to serve them and to help them with their goals.
0: I spend so much time on business meetings talking about personal stuff, I can't really describe it. it's like just we have shared interests because we're in the same business, and so We talk about those what's going on in the business and the trade, and we talk about new things we've read and things we've seen, and then the business ends up being like twenty percent of the conversation, and it's like, oh, we're running out of time. Boom, 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 boom. Here's what we need to work on. Great, talk to you next time. And um, Emily is much more. Let's like go through. Let's get through the business, and if there's time, we can have the the small talk. I'm like completely flipped on the other way around.
1: Well, that brings up an interesting point because people have different personalities. So I think part of, part of the way we serve our clients, whether it's in coaching or another, or another capacity is to understand what serves them best. Like I have some clients who want to spend a little more time on just having a, having an informal conversation and, you know, building that rapport is really important to them. And so that is a valuable way to spend some of our session, and then because it makes them feel comfortable, like we're getting to know each other. It, it's not like we can't share anything about our personal lives. We just have to get straight into business. But then there are some clients who are more like that. They're like, "I'm paying for this time. <laughs> I don't like. I don't want to tell you how my weekend was. Like, I just want to dive in. I have a lot to do, you know." And so you sort of learn to read them and what works for them, and and that's another great. Uh, thing that we get out of the consultation is that like, I'm paying attention to this stuff. Like how, how are they in the consultation? Are they real chit chatty uh, or are they just real focused on the purpose, you know, of the meeting? Uh, And that way I can, I I can tailor how I coach them. Like sometimes they're going to want to be more social and, and, and sometimes I have to say, okay, as the coach, I need to be the one to bring us back to what we need to talk about And other times uh, it's, I need to make sure that I'm focused and don't come across as wasting time to them because I want to build rapport, right? So it really uh, is about figuring out what works best for that individual person.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And now that I'm thinking through each of my clients, there's varying degrees of that chit chat or small talk or personal time in our conversations depending on the people some of them are very much some people just want an email recap don't even want to get on a phone call like they're they just they, they just want those high uh, and they'll call we'll get on a call in when necessary and some people want a by week like every other week conversation some people want a once a month conversation that's a little bit longer so i think it's important to just work with how people want to be worked with, for sure.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that's true to a certain extent, but you also have to know what works for you. Like, how can you best serve them? And so there's always that balance of showing up as the expert in a sense, right? And hey, we're only going to get this accomplished if we can do certain things, like certain things we can be flexible on, certain things we can't. Uh, this is another way where I think that having, assist- having systems, processes, and boundaries plays out, Um, because to some extent, yeah, you want to individualize the experience to the client, but at the same time, you can't let them be controlling or calling all the shots. Right. So you have to know where can I be flexible and where do I need to really have be sort of a stick in the mud? Like, no, this is how it works. Right.
0: I learned that lesson the hard way because I had a client that didn't respond to emails well, didn't get on the phone. And I wasn't able to perform my services to the maximum ability because I can only do so much on my own without interaction back from them. And then it turned out, you know, I, I did the best that I could in those, those, that situation, but it wasn't as good as I normally can provide a, a service. And so I always in the back of my mind felt like I wasn't doing a very good job, even though I was doing the best I could in that scenario. And I ended up getting fired by the client, like six or seven or eight months into our arrangement. Because he just felt I wasn't doing a good enough job, I think. I, and, and it's true, I wasn't. And I learned that that was, that was my fault. It, what I needed to demand the type of communication I needed to perform the work as best as possible. And if he couldn't commit to that level of communication, then he couldn't be a continued client. Like, I'm sorry, I have standards as far as the work that I'm able to perform. I want to perform great work for you. And unless we communicate more frequently, I can't. And I never did that. And so I lost a client and I learned a valuable lesson from it.
1: Oh, that's, I mean, that's such a good example, right? Like, cause we think sometimes that we're serving our client by pleasing them, by catering to them, but that's not always the case. And if, if you get that sense, that feeling, that gut feeling where, oh, I don't, I don't know if I'm doing a good job, I'm doing everything I can, but in order to serve them, here's what I need them to do. That can be really hard to, first of all, recognize, like we have to get enough experience under our belt sometimes to just identify that that's what's going on in the moment, but then to actually call it out, that takes a lot of courage. And that's where there's a question that I ask myself and I love to ask, I love to have my clients ask this too, is how can I best serve this client in this moment? Like, what do they need from me right now? So if that means that they need me to take a little bit of a personal risk to be uncomfortable and to say something that, gosh, I don't know if they're going to like hearing this, but my goal is really to help them get the best results possible. I got to tell them, Hey, I need you to do this because I'm doing everything I can, you know, or this is, this is required. This is not optional or whatever it might be.
0: Or say, we're not gonna meet again until you do that because we can't move forward until you do yes. that. Like it's physically, it's literally the wall that's preventing your growth. You know it's the wall, I know it's the wall. We've identified the next small step to do. There's no sense meeting again next week if you didn't do it.
1: <laughs> it's 100% true. And, and I, I think that in the types of services that you and I provide, James, and probably this extends to most most areas of business, it's easy to take on the client's responsibility, and to say like I'm just I, I service is being going above and beyond. Yes, it's going above and beyond, but in the right ways, not taking on what they need to be responsible for. Right, going back to boundaries. What do What are they responsible for?
0: Definitely, it has to be a two way street, and I think it's it's important. Like So my business is a marketing agency, so provide ongoing services for brands that are selling on Amazon, and it's important that it's clear up front what I'm going to do and what they're going to do. If it's not clear, they're going to think I should be doing things that I never planned on doing and be disappointed when I didn't, and if I don't have it clear what they need to do, then they're not going to be doing what I need to do to provide the best service. So it's like, it's super important. It's just like in school, if a teacher gives you homework and you don't do it, then when you have a test, you're not going to be prepared for the test because you didn't do your part. Like they did their part in teaching me in the class. They did their part in assigning homework that would help you with the, the lesson that was coming. And then you didn't perform your part of the agreement, which I never did, by the way. I was, I was, a, I was a horrible student. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's um, clarity is kindness, right?
0: That's, I like that. Clarity is kindness. And the th- thing about business is you, if you get it wrong, just don't get it wrong again. Like I lost that client, learned a valuable lesson, wrote a blog post about it so it would really stick, and then I got more clear when I was onboarding clients in the future as far as what the cadence of conversations would be. As lo- it's, it's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn something from it.
1: Oh, yeah. I would take it a step further. It's not only okay to make mistakes, it's necessary to make mistakes. And if you're going to grow your business, like if you want to have that 1 million in revenue, you have to love making mistakes. Like learn to love making mistakes and learning from them. I think that second piece, learning from them is just as important. But don't run your business with the mindset of I'm... I'm trying to avoid mistakes. Just take take risks that you can actually afford. Um, don't don't take risks that you can't afford. And then that way, because because affor- mistakes are going to cost you money, right? Like in a business, they're going to cost you money. They're going to cost you the client, or they're going to cost you. Oh, I wasted my money on this ad strategy or whatever. So just make sure that. The mistake is affordable. If it doesn't work out, if you try something new or if you're still getting comfortable with a process, that it, it's not something that's going to sink you financially. So make those mistakes and know that, hey, I don't, I don't need to succeed at this. Like obviously we want to, but if it doesn't, can you actually afford the mistake? And then can you learn from it and turn it into something that's going to make you more profitable?
0: That goes back to the beginning of our conversation. And it's like, get rich quick. I'm gonna bet it all. I quit my job. I saved up 50,000. I'm gonna spend all of it on this idea in six months. And if it works, I'm rich. If it doesn't, I'm broke. It's a moonshot. And some people are have been very successful with that model, but most people fail with that model. The true way to grow a business is slow and steady, calculated risks that you can afford and repeat it over and over again. And you do have to take some risk though, because that's how you grow like you got to try something new and spend some money but is there a formula is it just based on where your business is at and how much growth you want and you, what your cash flow is at like is it easy to know like how much is too much when you're kind of starting out
1: I, I think there is a formula actually i think there are there are guardrails and when you know your you when you understand your business's cash flow and you put boundaries around your risk um you can take risk but it's almost like it's it's almost like the risk is in its own little separate bubble on the side where if that one pops and it goes nowhere you haven't actually interrupted your current operations. And so that's done by setting aside a percentage of your revenue for profit for retained earnings. So if you are setting aside if you're budgeting and you know this is what I need every month for my operating expenses This is what I need to reserve for taxes. This is how much I need for owner's pay. And this is how much revenue I'm making each month on average. Then you can say that means I've got 5%, or 10% or 15% set aside for profit. And with that profit, what you get to do is you get to expand your business. Because if you already have your operating expenses covered, you already have the taxes covered, you've already got your owner's pay covered, then The profit is like your play money. So you can pay off debt with that profit. You can build an emergency fund for your business with that profit. And then after that, you get to say, great, I'm going to take whatever is in my profit account and I can use that as I choose to expand. So maybe I want to offer a new service or create a new product. The profit is your budget to do that with. And so that's what growing at the speed of cash means. You know, People who take out debt, they're saying, well, I'm going to take out this debt. I'm going to take a risk. Yeah, you're taking a risk in the same way that someone using their profit is taking a risk, but you're adding on the risk that, hey, you're on the hook for paying this back if it doesn't work out. And you're sort of flying by the seat of your pants financially and your existing business that you have, you're putting at risk. And that's what we don't want to do. I think that's the line that gets crossed is we want to grow so fast and have that instant before and after, or, you know, we grew from zero to a million in 18 months and that becomes so appealing and so attractive that it, it, it justifies you can so easily, we make decisions based on our emotion and then we justify them with logic
0: the end of that story we went from 0 to a million in 18 months and then a million back to 0 in 6 <laughs> you know like
1: yeah have you ever heard of a company called wise acre frozen treats <laughs> because they were this um they made popsicles with like all natural sweeteners and when it was really innovative and stuff to do that and so they had 15 employees they went from just being this one little local operation to 15 employees on the east coast they were in a few grocery stores, a few retail stores. And then they got investors to give them like a million dollars or something like that so that they could expand to the West coast and be this national brand. Well, what happened is they got things in place before they actually got some of their money. And then the financial crisis of 2008 hit and one of their investors backed out and they couldn't afford, they didn't have the existing profit to be able to afford the expenses that they had already committed to. And so they went bankrupt, you know, they, they were growing too fast. And the other thing is, even if, even if you don't go bankrupt, you're setting yourself up for a lot of problems. When you grow slow, you learn to identify the challenges in your practice, in the logistics, in just things that, that can go wrong. You know, when you learn to navigate those challenges and those little failures one thing at a time, so that on your way to growth, you're constantly solving problems. But if you grow from 15 employees and a few stores to being nationwide, and you've got it, it changes the scale of your operations, and you're going to come across new kinds of challenges that you've that are not incremental, but they're exponential, and you don't know how to solve them anymore.
0: That is why, and I don't know the stats offhand. Most businesses fail within five years because they get a little success and then think, well, this is proven. Let's blow it up. They don't have the right people in place sometimes. Like, if you grow slow, you can make sure people are the right people and people can be actually have a full plate. It's crazy. You see some of these startups and they have 20 employees and most of them aren't doing anything all day. Like, they're just like, they've got like this very specific role that they do and they're basically in meetings all day and not actually working. It's 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 crazy. When I worked in retail, everybody had a job to do and they barely had enough time to do their job in their day. Like there was always more work left for the next day and that's why it worked. But changing gears completely. I am curious about the focus required in leaders. Have you noticed any ways to improve your focus to get that one thing done or the tasks that you need to get done from yourself or from your 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 clients?
1: Yeah, you have to get really good and really comfortable at saying no to a lot of things.
0: Wait, 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 wait. If you don't want to hear no from other people so you don't make phone calls, how do you how do you have the nerve to say no to other people?
1: Well I think they go hand in hand. Like you have to learn to love other people saying no to you. And you can feel the freedom to say no to others. Like having that freedom to hear that from someone, I think also gives us the freedom to say that, like, it's okay to say no. And it's necessary to say no. And if someone says no to you, we can understand that that's not a reflection on the value that you're providing or the services, but it's, it might not, it might just not be the right time or the right fit or whatever. And so yeah, no is no is a good thing, and I think a lot of leaders get to their point of leadership and success because they've said yes so much, and so it's a really big gear shift for them to get to that level. Whether it's through a promotion or just a, a new level in their business that they run, and they're so used to saying yes, and they don't stop saying yes, and so people are always taking up their their time and they're over committing to too many projects, and they're feeling burnt out, and they're feeling overwhelmed, and they feel like all they're doing all day long is responding to emails and going to meetings, and they don't have the margin to set their own agenda and actually do the leading, which is what they're supposed to be doing.
0: I just finished a book called Dream Big by Bob Goff, and I'd never read any of his books before, but he's got a new one coming out called Undistracted that I really am looking forward to. And so then I started reading his back catalog. This book, he talked about how being available is like how he became successful and how most of the successful people he knows are available. And I've noticed this trend when I'm trying to meet with someone uber successful, like people who've built and sold multiple businesses. It's like, hey, when can you meet? They're like, well, I can meet in an hour. It's like, how do you have time in an hour where most people I meet with, I have to like have two weeks notice to get on their calendar. Like somehow they said no to everything except the things they wanted to do or the things that only they could do. And so now they have tons of availability for the right things. It's, it's like stark. It's so obvious when you, when you pay attention. And the people you're waiting weeks and weeks and weeks to talk to, the other thing Bob Goff said And this is how you can learn to say no. Every Thursday, he quits doing something he used to do. It could be a habit. It could be a recurring meeting. It could be a club that he was in or a community engagement. Every Thursday, he has to drop something out of his life. And what that allows him to do is say yes to new things. And he's gentle about it. That's the important thing. You can say no and still be loving and kind. You don't have to be, no, I don't have time for you. Like, leave me alone. It can be like, hey, I'm sorry, I can't do that right. Or you got to be honest, though. Like, I can't do it right now. Sorry, I can't do that. That's that's perfectly enough of an explanation. Like, you don't have to give a huge explanation, but you can be gentle. about.
1: Yeah, that. you can say, sorry, that doesn't work for me, but good luck or whatever. I mean, it, it, you know, there's that saying no is a complete sentence, like, or it's a complete answer. Yes, it is. Of course, we're not just going to do that and just say no and like walk away from somebody. But yeah, it's good. Again, clarity is kindness. So don't be ambiguous when your answer is no, you don't have to say it with an attitude either, you know, and and however someone feels about that, that's, that's, that's their responsibility, right? And same with us, when someone says no to us, we're responsible for how we how we deal with that.
0: What would you quit if you had to quit something this week to free up some time? What would you quit?
1: Laundry? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what would I quit uh, to free up more time? Ooh, that's a really
0: yeah. You have to quit something every week from now on. What are you quitting this week? <laughs> Is there a client that you know you see him on your calendar and you're like, oh, I have to talk to Joe again? Like, oh, not Joe. No, like, that's a perfect person to quit.
1: It's so it's so oh, you
0: free. already you already did yeah, that. I've
1: already done that. It's so good. So Um,
0: let's think of something. What's something you can quit? I'll think of something. Oh, I'm going to like turn
1: this around on my clients. This is good. What's something you're going to quit?
0: I'm going to quit going on Instagram before 10 o'clock. Like that's what I need to do. Like not even check. I've gotten pretty good at not spending a lot of time on it. Maybe five, 10 minutes a day. But if I could not check my email or Instagram before, let's say 10 o'clock, I would be much more productive in the morning. I wouldn't be feeling like I'm operating on other people's agendas instead of my own. And so I'm going to, that's what I'm going to say right now is I'm not going to check my email or my social media before 10 o'clock and I'm going to write it down.
1: Ooh, that's really good. I think I'm going to take inspiration from that.
0: I'm really afraid by the way, I'm scared to even write that down. Like it's like a dopamine addiction. Like when I wake up, I need that pulse and it's horrible because I have this whole agenda of things I like to do in the morning and this always derails the morning, like all the time. This morning it derailed it. This morning, I was about to sit down and read my uh, my morning book. I always have a, I have a few different books I'm reading at different times of day. And for example, I wake up and in bed I read my Bible for five ten minutes first thing before I get out of bed because if I get out of bed, then the world pulls me away. Um, and then I do a couple morning things, and then I read a spiritual book, one chapter, something about being a, a better man or being a godly man or something in that way, and then I can go on to nonfiction pleasure reading and then in the evening, I read fiction a lot of times. like I just finished this fascinating book from I think the 40s and it was what makes Sammy Run. So but this morning, guess what? I checked my email and it derailed me. I had some stuff I had to respond I had to respond to it now that I knew it was there, but if I didn't know it was there, I would have been fine.
1: Yeah. It feels so urgent, right? Like the other person is going to know exactly when we open up our email and we're obligated to get to it right away. I think similar, similarly to you, I have gotten in the, in the bad habit of looking at my phone and checking my email literally before I even get out of bed. And that's, oh my gosh, that's so embarrassing to admit. So the thing is I like to make the morning's A not rushed time to the extent that I can, because I've got three little ones. Uh, The twins are six years old and they're in first grade. And the the littlest one is two. So it's going to be chaotic anyways, but you know, I, I get the kids ready for school and I take them to school. And if I'm thinking about work stuff or things that other people are demanding of me, well, those voices are now in my head and they're part of the conversation at the breakfast table, like at least internally. And that's really not productive or helpful or, uh, conducive to that time, you know, with my family in the morning. So I am not going to look at my phone. I'm not going to open up anything on my phone until after I drop off the kids at school.
0: And you know, one other thing to add to that, because I've tried to do this so many times, by the way, um, (laughs) is you can't even give the person on social media or email a good quality response because you have to go do this other task. So you're looking at it and then you're just going to mull over it and you can't actually handle it. Like, what good is that? Like, it should be like, you read it, you handle it. And if you can't handle it, don't read it.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. It's it's so easy to get drawn into that lie that we can be focused on multiple things at once. We can't. And it, I, it, it's amazing how it hasn't, it's been what, maybe a decade since most people started having smartphones. Like, what did we do before? Can we even remember what it was like to get to our desk, open up the computer, and then look at the email. I mean, so I think life was probably a little bit less stressful.
0: Well, you're skipping a step because it, you used to have to connect to your AOL account, which took like three minutes. So you couldn't like just check your email.
1: That's so true. Like what would we do if we had to sit at a desk for three minutes and listen to that horrible sound every time?
0: Like we wouldn't you know, probably know, that's actually. often. That's a great... App. uh, We were talking about focus and distractions. If someone just made like before, you could get onto your computer. You had to like type. You had you would like type your password, and then it would like do the AOL noise for three minutes, like trying to connect. You probably wouldn't go on there unless you really needed to go on.
1: (laughs) Is it worth it? Is it worth? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Now, my other coaching advice for you is: Is there a way you can keep your phone somewhere else? Like, does it have to be? Like I've found for habits like this, it's easier if I like you mentioned the word guardrails either like make my phone is across the entire house. It's like the farthest place from my bed in the entire house. Like it's much easier for me not to go on it before I read my Bible in the morning because it's not even in the room. Could you store it somewhere else? And so then you could have a few minutes to yourself before you go downstairs. Oh,
1: for sure. Yeah, like having those really tactical things. Like if you're going to break a habit or form a new habit, you've got to set up your environment to make it conducive. So yeah, instead of just saying I'm not going to look at my phone, well, I'm going to default to my existing habit if it's there, you know, on my nightstand. So yeah, I can take that. And I can say, it. Right, I'm going to charge my phone at night downstairs and keep it downstairs or put it, you know in the car or probably not, but, you know, put it somewhere else (laughs) so that it's, so that it's out of sight, out of mind. And then it's like literally inaccessible.
0: We went down to watch the sunset last night, which is one of our habits we do multiple times per week. And Emily left her phone in the car and didn't even realize it. Um, so this morning she's like, I don't even know where my phone is. And we realized it was in the car and I go, wow, what a great, way to make us not use the phone in the morning if we locked it in the car and we don't want to go out in the cold and so it's just out there and it's just it's like these devices pull us they own us really and i just think about kids watching us on these devices before they even have them realizing That those devices are the most important things in our life just based on our actions and how much time we spend on them.
1: Oh, that is such a that is such a good point. That's such a good point because they say more is caught than taught and they absorb what we what we do, not what we say. So if what we do and what we say are not congruent, they're going to they're going to go with what they observe us doing. And,
0: and, and yeah, and you mentioned, what did we used to do? F- like to check our email and it took like minutes and minutes to get on AOL. But I heard just two weeks ago from uh, a friend of ours who has a couple kids that she said, most of her, most other kids came out, sit down to watch a movie anymore mm-hmm. because they're so conditioned to like quick, fast paced YouTube videos. They can't sit down and watch like an hour and 30 minute Long Disney animation or anything anymore—they don't have the attention span. So, like, that's frightening because I don't even have the attention span not to check my email in the first hour of the day, or the focus, or the the willpower. What is going to happen with our kids? Is it going to be like built into their brain? Like they're going to need it while they're sleeping? They're going to be watching TV? Like what's going to happen?
1: Well, I think we just have to—we have to be intentional about cultivating that in our own lives, right? Modeling that. and and showing that self-discipline so that that's their idea of normal. Because I think I read that by the time that kids are like nine years old, they've sort of formed their filter. They formed their worldview. They formed their filter for what's normal and what's not normal. And so if we can model what we want them to, to experience as this is how the world works, this is how people interact. We have to do that when they're young and we have to be consistent in our own lives, because that's what they're going to say. This is normal. This is what people do.
0: That's deep. And I keep thinking, I've been going back and forth on this. I'm thinking of going back to a flip phone Mm. and just get a GPS in my car. Like any of the excuses I come up with why I need a smartphone, I could come up with a counter like, oh, well, I use it for navigation. Okay. I'll get a GPS or I use it for email. Well, email is best done at a desktop anyway. Like maybe... What about posting on Instagram? That's a tough one. That's one I haven't been able to overcome yet, but I'm sure I could figure it out. I've pretty good boundaries with my phone, but I know that if there was a kid in this house and they saw how many times I pick it up in a day, it's way more times than my Bible. It's way more times than I hug my wife. It's way more times than I work out. It's my idol. Like I spend more time with it than anything else that I do.
1: Yeah, it is. <laughs> it really is. And it it's one of those things that it's like that just sort of becomes the default. And I think that with our lives, we're always either going to be floating with the current or we're going to be swimming upstream. Like it's never going to feel, well, I don't want to say it's never, I I think that the idea of swimming upstream sort of, you know, going against the culture, going against what the sort of lazy default is, so to speak. It's not that it'll always be a struggle because once once a habit is a habit, it feels normal, but it's sort of acclimating yourself to that different way of life that I think is difficult. I I took the step of deleting most of my social media and now I only use it for work stuff. But at first I was like, I realized that I have never in my adult life ever not had social media. Like Facebook came out the year before I started college and it was only for college students then. And so I was like, kind of excited about it because, oh, you get your college email address. Like that's a big day. And then you can get your Facebook account. I literally had never experienced adult life without social media. And I had that realization last year and I go, oh my gosh, that's horrible. Like, and so I just, I'm like, I'm getting rid of this. This isn't that there is not a net benefit to keeping this right. So I deleted it. I did not miss it. I, for the first couple of weeks, I did find myself like intuitively, like clicking on the app and being like, what am I doing? It's just like muscle memory. And that was, that was scary. That was motivation to stick with not having it. But after like the first couple of weeks, I just felt so much freer. I found more time in my day. I found myself even just more naturally uh, connecting with people who were in my real life. I mean, imagine that. Like I had more bandwidth to uh, get together with friends and just follow up with people. And so I realized that, wow, social media really does not, I don't think it has a net positive. I think it can be a positive tool depending on how it's used and how often it's used, but you've got to put really tight guardrails around it and be super intentional about how much time you're spending on it, what the purpose is, is it. Is it having a negative effect on my real relationships, um, and to and to make sure that it it stays in its place?
0: If social media worked, loneliness statistics wouldn't be at all time highs. Mm-hmm. And so the science shows it doesn't work. Yeah. And a trick to really feel if you're clicking onto your social media too much is move where the button is on your home screen on your phone. And when you struggle like 20 times that first day to find it, you it sinks in how much of a Twitch that is. It yeah. is a Twitch.
1: Oh, it is. Or just delete, delete it, delete it as an app and have to go through your browser. Hmm. And you'll be like, oh, yeah, I don't have the app anymore. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And then
0: you're like, oh, I don't really want to check it that bad. And you're like, oh, wait, maybe it's not actually that important to me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean that. That's also true. Once you kind of get away from it, it's like you like almost detox from it. <laughs> I hate to say it, but it's kind of true. Um, it is
0: one hundred percent true. Your mm-hmm. point
1: though about there's more anxiety and more depression, or you said that it, that that problem would have been solved if social media uh, really did connect us. I've got to share this with you. I just came across it last night and something just clicked. Let me just find it real quick here. All right. So I found that that I found this to be profound. This was a newsletter that, um, my kids school every week, they send a a parent newsletter and they feature an article. So this is called too much stuff, not enough mastery by Keith McCurdy. And he works with kids. I don't know his whole background, but from the article, I gathered that he works with kids and families on discipline and, just kid issues, developmental issues. And basically what he says here is it's all about how we give kids like too much stuff, too many privileges. You know, you give the eight-year-old the phone and then we go, well, why can't you keep your room clean? Or, you know, why didn't you clean that up? Or why are you misusing the phone or whatever? Because we give them all this stuff, but they don't have the ability to manage those responsibilities. And here's what he says. Childhood is to be enjoyed, but true enjoyment comes from being trained and instructed in ways that develop mastery of managing life. And I thought, how, how profound is, is that? Um, he said, we've taken the stance that childhood is a time of innocence and freedom without any sort of burden. So as to not ruin their fond memories of such an early and fragile age, because of this, we have a difficult time saying no, to go back to our conversation about saying no, And and regularly buy and give in excess of what is healthy. This is complete and utter rubbish. This thinking has given us the highest levels of anxiety and depression among children that we have ever seen. And then he says, enjoyment comes from being trained and instructed in ways that develop mastery of managing life. And I thought, man, that doesn't apply just to kids.
0: And do you know another thing we have beaten out of children at a young age that connects with that is asking why? And some of the most successful entrepreneurs that I know, they ask why all the time. It's almost like frustrating. Like, do you have to know why everything I like everything, but like we take, we're like, because I said so or whatever. And maybe that's okay in a lot of scenarios. I don't have kids, so I'm not going to become a a parenting guru here. But um, I ask why all the time now. And it is like, not something I learned. Like I had to like, it was something I had to relearn, I guess. That curiosity, and I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting, and I think it goes back to us just being a model for our children, like telling them no, and with grace, and asking them why, and being showing them our good personal habits. Because as you said, they're learning it. What based on watching us, we have to do a. We have to be conscious of what we're doing.
1: Yeah. I think it really comes down to, can we manage our own lives? Can we manage our own lives in a way that is fulfilling to us, but then also teaches, teaches the next generation how to manage their lives. And I, I think, you know, social media and phones, you know, that's, that's one of the big culprits. Like it's kind of the obvious thing to point to, but I think that's almost more of an expression of the deeper problem, which is. If they knew how to how to manage what they have, if we gave them that skills, if we cultivated that skill in ourselves to be able to manage the responsibility uh, that comes with all of this technology, then then we would be able to have true enjoyment in our lives and not just have to get that next, you know, that next fix.
0: I can't add anything to that, and so I I want to ask you something completely off. Gears. Go for it. Something I've been thinking about. help other people and coach other people based on just, I've had so many experiences. How would I start a coaching program? Like if I wanted to start a a coaching program and I wanted to help five up and coming people be successful, not just in business, but in life too, how would I start? Like, what would you tell me to do? Oh,
1: I love it. So do you want to be like, what do you kind of want to help people with? Like, do you, because when people say I want to be a life coach or I want to be a coach or there's sort of two schools of thought. One is that you shouldn't, uh, focus on like one particular skill set. Like I, like me being a financial coach, I love saying that I'm a financial coach. We touch on different things related to finances, but it it does, it, it centers on the finances. And I love that I can help people with a particular skill. Other coaches, want to help people with like their mindset, right? Or I want to be just general, whatever it is in life. And so I always like laugh at those like 22 year olds who are like, I'm a life coach. And I'm like, you've been alive for two minutes. But (laughs) obviously you've got a lot of like great experience, James. So what would you love to help people with? Like, how do you want to coach them?
0: That's a good question. I have a philosophy that we've talked about before, of being well-rounded and not have any glaring gaps in your life that are holding you back from achieving success, however you define success. Like I can't define success for you, but if I was coaching you, I could maybe help you dream bigger than you have in the past and maybe think you're worth more than you've thought before, or maybe tell you you're worth more than anyone's really shared with you before and help you think really big and like cancel out the negative talk that you have just in a brief conversation and then create goals and plans based on what I've just seen work and not work. And really, um, it's just being well-rounded and just loving life and like loving the joy of of the pursuit of success and happiness.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like You want to help people get to their next level of success and enjoy their lives while they're doing it.
0: Definitely. Because one of my big pet peeves is like, I'm going to work really, really hard for 40 years so I can enjoy my life at 65. My philosophy is you need to build your life so you can enjoy it right now. You may not live to 65, and if you do, you may not be able to do the things that you want to do. So make a list of the things you would love to do if money wasn't an issue, time was an issue, and skills weren't an issue, and then let's figure out how to break those down into, like as you said, yearly, monthly, weekly, daily goals, and get there. Like right now, one of my crazy goals is I want to hike one of the, um, one of the big peaks in the world. I don't have any of the ability to do that yet, except that I can walk really, really far. It's going to be a long time before I get there. But first things first, I have to start with learning some skills, some, some navigation skills and some backpacking skills and, and, and survival skills. And I think that that's what I can offer people is how to dream big, bigger than they ever have before. And not just about money, but about like experiences in life to really love life. Cause I love life. Like I, I just love every minute of it. And I want more people to really love life and be happy.
1: See James, based on that, like I would hire you to coach me. So here's the thing. I don't think that, I think you already have everything you need. Like You, you told me your story of how you got started with the podcast and it was like, we'll just start. And I don't, I honestly don't believe that that's the answer for everyone all the time. Like if there might be, if you want to coach someone around something and you're not quite at the level where you need to be before you can coach someone else on that, then you need to develop your own skills. But I think that you're really aligning your own experience and expertise with how you want to coach people and you've lived it and you can help guide someone else. So, I would say you just start. Like, I don't think you need to go get life coach certification or take these classes or have a funnel system to get clients. Like, I think you probably know five people today that you could reach out to and say, Hey, I'm starting this. Would you be interested in having a conversation? And if this interests you, then I could be your coach.
0: Do you do a couple people? for free before you charge you or like, what would you do in that? I,
1: I did. I, I coached maybe three or four people for free.
0: You know, I, I just, sorry to interrupt, but I'm just thinking I, when I think about it, I've been doing this I was gonna, for, for almost two decades. That was what I, was say. Next,
1: I don't think you need to, I think you've, you've already been coaching people. You just haven't been calling it coaching. So uh, this is another Rich Litvin thing that I, I love that he says is that, coaches are leaders. So if you've been a leader, you can coach others.
0: When I led my team at Best Buy of almost 100 people, most of my one-on-one time with employees was not about their job in the building. It was about helping them achieve their bigger picture life goals that were maybe making them disgruntled or not as focused at work as possible. And it got them to play ball and work hard and love every minute of being in the building. And I think... Like not to go in back into the management and leadership topic again, but we spend so much time like trying to keep our employees inside the job. But if we just help them become better people, they would be much better employees while they're at at work. and if they leave, they leave. And guess what? They take good thoughts with them because you help them get there,
1: yeah, i I don't I don't I think you just need to start and making those uncomfortable phone calls and putting yourself out there to say, Hey, I'm, I'm coaching people or I'm mentoring them or whatever you want to call it, but you kind of have to just start to be able to say, and I don't think you do need to offer it for free. In fact, for you, I would not, you know, some, for some people, for me, it was helpful to sort of get my feet wet and like all this, but no, I don't, I, I wouldn't offer anything for free. Cause you're already doing so much to that. That really is coaching. It's just not called coaching. And so I would. I would start saying, Hey, this is something that I'm offering. Or maybe you handpick a few people that you want to talk to and, and just go from there. And then from there, you really figure out who do I love to coach the most? Like who really is the best fit? Um, But you've got to sort of get those reps under your belt to know who that ideal client is going to be.
0: Yep. I got to do it. And if someone's listening to this and this resonates, Here's my pitch. Send me an email. Instagram DM me. Send me a tweet. At anywhere you can find me. I don't know. I'm I'm on the I'm on the internet. I'm pretty easy to find. And if this sounds good to you, you have you may not have big goals right now. You will if you talk to me. You may already have the goals and you just don't know how to get there. Or maybe you just want a cheerleader and a support buddy and someone who holds you accountable or whatever you need. We'll figure it out. I'll help you get there. And I might join you in climbing a ma- your biggest mountain. So <laughs> So there's my pitch. <laughs> I love it. Cool. Okay, so let's um let's talk about you and what you're working on next and where we can find you and how we can support you in what you're doing.
1: Yeah, so I I too am accepting coaching clients currently. So if you run a business and you want some help getting your finances organized around your business, like maybe you've been ignoring the financial organization piece for too long, if you're kind of running on as long as there's money in the bank, we're good, uh, you can do so much more with that. And I can help you grow your business and be intentional about the way that you use your profit and you pay yourself to reach your personal goals and streamline everything and make it so much more simple um, and easier. And that's going to give you the clarity to set tangible goals and then go reach them. So if that is appealing to you, you can. Find me on Instagram, Lauren underscore um, or uh, you can send me a DM there or go to my website, laurenrilling.com and schedule a time to talk. Um, and I've just started a YouTube video series. This is like brand new territory for me, but I call it simple business stewardship and it's on YouTube and we've got a few episodes posted there. Um, so check that out as well.
0: So I'll link to your website, your social media accounts, your YouTube channel, all of the books that we recommended through this conversation. And I'll find the article um, by Keith about too much stuff, not enough mastery. And I'll link to all that over at Quandel.com slash Lauren. That's com slash Lauren. And it's been just so much fun to chat with you. And I, I really enjoyed our conversation and I really appreciate you coaching me on helping others and you're, you just got a lot going on. So I'm really excited to watch as you continue to grow and put yourself out there and, and, and practice what you preach. Because I think folks, when you're looking for coaches, life coaches, any type of mentor, you wanna go to people who are doing what you wanna do and living the life that you wanna live, not just talking a game. And I think that it's important to, to figure that out. And, and, and that's, that's part of the the challenge. So and I think you're doing it.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I echo that. That's so, so important that, uh, you know, you've got to, you've got to walk, you've got to walk the talk. And if you're not struggling, you're probably not challenging yourself enough. So, <laughs> uh, It's been so much fun to talk with you today, James. It didn't even feel like a podcast recording. It was just really fun to talk. And I got so much insight from you as well. And it's been awesome. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the James Quandall show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on a review and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show. See you next time.